Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm your host, TechCrunch Managing Editor, Dale Etherington, and I'm here with my illustrious co-host, TechCrunch Plus reporter, Becca Skutak. Hey, Becca. How's it going? Going well, Daryl. How are you? I'm so good. Ready to tell some more stories behind the startups, which is exactly what we do here on Found when we speak every week to a new, unique individual, a founder of one of these tech companies that we write about, care about so deeply, right, Becca? Dream about, read about on Twitter, tell our parents about, and they say, I've never heard of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Bore people to death about, basically. But you, our listeners, will not be bored because this is an excellent conversation, as are they all, which is a good uh, reminder that everybody should be subscribing to this podcast if you're not already. You should leave us a comment, leave us a review, and you should also tell your friends all about it. That's the best way for us to grow. Yeah, but back to today's conversation. We're talking to Enrique Dubugras from Brex, which is a corporate card and spend management software company. And yeah, they're trying to kill Concur. Not really. I, I think he would disagree with that, but I hope they kill Concur. Right, Becca? I think we all hope they kill Concur. <laughs> Hey, Enrique, how's it going? Hey, I'm great. How about you? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. You know, it's the start of the week as we're recording this, which is a time full of optimism, uh, maybe some dread, (laughs) depends on your perspective. But great to have you here. Can you do us all a favor just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with Brex, I'll bet a lot of them are, but in case any of them aren't, can you give us a quick summary of what it is that Brex does? Yeah, for sure. So at Brex, we do uh, spend management and corporate cars that teams actually love. So um, we usually replace Amex and Concur in a company so employees can have a much better experience and deliver even higher compliance for finance teams. Great. All right. That's a nice, succinct summary. And I think, Becca, we have ample experience with both of those things. We use Concur here. <laughs> and There you go. <laughs> Concur is awful it is an awful awful piece of shit i think we we (laughs) we had an issue where we had uh, at the time the ceo of concur or uh, yes i forget who they're owned by but on stage at disrupt and then frederick a a colleague of ours asked him as a kicker question like why is concur so awful and just and his it caused quite the shit storm like behind the scenes oh wow their team was calling us and like, why does Frederick think that Concur is bad? Can you give us more specific feedback? And Frederick had just did it as a throwaway because everyone thinks that it's absolute trash. Like no one is like, oh, cool. Like this is a great system. I love using it. Mm-hmm. Unless Becca, do you really enjoy the time that you spend doing expenses here at TechCrunch? No, I was going to say <laughs> the opposite. Um, <laughs> I was going to say my favorite tweet that's come out of the Elon Musk Twitter merger is people saying he should buy Concur next. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the problem resonates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's obviously a need and a demand and some kind of uh, well-expressed disappointment with the existing solutions. But can you tell us a bit more about why you chose to do this and how you even got into the this area to begin with? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll tell you the whole story, but let me just address two points you made around Concur to sure. explain why. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like it's, it has like a massive market share, like 80% market share or something. And at the same time, everyone hates it. So, mm. you know, that's kind of what we were trying to find out. And I think there's like kind of three fundamental points about it. So the first one 
think that when Krakura was created, you know, I think it was 25 years ago, it was trying to like, you know, I worked in CD-ROMs and it was trying to like put expenses into machines, right? Like wow. that was like just the, it was just like replacing paper. So better than paper was winning, right? Yeah. And I think that the fundamental view of Concur till this day is like, hey, we need to help businesses get compliant. And therefore, we need to have software to allow them to have workflows to do that, right? Like, think about going from the world from paper to online, that was kind of the goal. But there was never any counterbalance of like how much burden that would put in the organization, right? So I think that was kind of the, you know, if you just understand the history a little bit, that's where it came from. What we do at Brex uh, in the opposite is like we kind of found out that most people, they kind of go through the law minimum effort. So if you actually make it super easy for them to do things, they will actually be compliant and do the mm-hmm. right thing. But you just need to put the effort into making it easy, which is not a it sounds intuitive. But, you know, we need to get a lot of people to, to agree with that um, yeah. is that easy as it <laughs> gets people to be compliant. The second thing that's probably also, you know, not, not as easy as like, hey, all the like spend management software in the past was always like, hey, this is the software piece of it. And then hopefully this will connect to the financial piece of it in some way, shape or form. Right. Right. So personal cards are the example. So you have your personal card and then you have to take a picture of your seat and type everything up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or even when it integrates with your corporate card, you know, that integration is very bad because the banks has to integrate from Kerr and all that doesn't work super well. So conversely, what we do at Brex is, you know, we're kind of like card first. So in a lot of our customers, everyone in the organization gets a corporate card and we created enough controls and policies to make finance teams comfortable with giving corporate cards to everyone. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we can just, that integration is seamless. So we can like make it all the data and everything automated because we're not depending on user action to actually know that the purchase happened or the transaction happened, right? Right. So that's kind of like the second point. And then the third point is a lot broke with uh, hybrid and remote workforces. So before, basically, you know, Concur was built exclusively for like, hey, I'm a sales rep traveling to see customers, right? That is the use case, the business traveler. Mm -hmm. And that was the only type of person expensing. Now, everyone is expensing somehow, right? Because of remote work, we're going to offsites, we have employee stipends, we have like, you know, people going to meet each other, right, for coffee to, you know, make sure they're building a relationship. And so all the flows that made a lot of sense for like the individual or T&E road warrior don't make a lot of sense for the majority of the employee population, right? So I would say those are kind of the three factors of why like it's very outdated and, you know, definitely something needs to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, all those points make sense. And it's just like, it still seems like the impetus was not there. But I guess the the other thing, which we'll probably get into a lot more later on, is like most of these were handled by like very large companies, which are like those were the clients, right? The clients are huge, large companies, and they're essentially like inertia machines. Like all they do is like, oh, we'll get slower and slower and slower over time. And it's like, what's the impetus to change this? Like there isn't really one, right? Totally. I mean, there is now, and there, I, there, and there definitely is if you look at it on a granular level, but especially for smaller players, which which we can talk about for sure, I think, later on. But I do, I, yeah, I'm really curious. Like, it's such an interesting problem to solve, and I know your background was, like, not originally corporate expenses, obviously. I think, you know, you met your co-founder in high school. You guys weren't thinking about this back then, probably. So how, how did you come to this? Yeah, for sure. So I think that, um, you know, my, my story personally was, you know, I born and raised in Brazil. I think that was very important to to everything because I started coding and I had access to the internet. So I had just like a lot of knowledge, you know, that I was able to learn how to code and meet people and work at startups. And, you know, by the time when I started our first company, uh, both my co-founder and I, we met on Twitter, we were 16. 
And we decided to start a payments company. If you think about that 20 years ago, that would be impossible, right? Like how right. would a 16 year old even know how to do things to be able to start? You know, it just like doesn't even make sense 20 years ago. But, you know, with the advent of the internet and everything happening, you know, that was even possible. And we landed in fintech and that was honestly like very accidental. Mm-hmm. You know, my co-founder got hired by Brazil's largest payments company to work there. So he kind of understood a lot about payments and. I kind of had to implement payments in my app that I was building and I've had terrible experience. So we joined, you know, my customer pain point with his knowledge of the industry and decided to start our first business in Brazil that was called Pagarment. That was uh, kind of like Stripe for Brazil. So mm-hmm. very easy payment processing in Brazil. And, and that company did well. But, you know, I think what we realized was if we looked at, you know, we were the Stripe of Brazil, but I think in general, we wanted to be Stripe, right? Like we wanted to create a global company that had global impact. But in order to do that, we had to go to Silicon Valley to do that. And we both had gotten into Stanford. So we're like, okay, that's a good way to get a visa and a way into Silicon Valley. Six months into our journey into Stanford, we decided that we wanted to drop out to start Brex, right? And I think for Brex, we were already doing B2B financial services in Brazil. So we already knew kind of like how to do what we wanted to do because we were already processing credit cards on one side of the acquiring side. So now this was kind of like the issuing side. And the first value proposition that everyone knows is like, hey, corporate card for startups, right? Like you raise $3 million, $4 million. You can't get a corporate card. Let's make that easy for you. So that was kind of like the original insight. And the second insight was like, hey, we realized that a lot of the reasons that banks couldn't copy anything that we were doing was because they had very old legacy systems. So mm-hmm. everything they wanted to build, it was like $50 million in three years to do it, right? right. So it's very hard. Until this day, banks haven't copied us, right? Like, you know, like almost six years in and uh, a lot of money raised and success. They tried a little bit, but it hasn't worked. And the reason is the core technology is really old and very hard to change. Mm-hmm. So I would say that was like phase one of Brex, right? Is like enabling companies to basically start spending and make it easier. This process of starting a company, right? Like reducing that friction and making that easier. But then we went to phase two of Brex recently, which was like, okay, like a lot of these businesses that we signed up when we were small now became large businesses. And then the pandemic happened and a lot of them became distributed or hybrid businesses. And with that, all these new challenges started rising. And when we looked at kind of like what we think the future and the reality is, it's like before there was this world in which Pedro and I, we were from Brazil and we needed to come to Silicon Valley in order to have the opportunity even to build Brex. Mm-hmm. But now with the advent of remote work and hybrid work, that is not true anymore. People anywhere actually can start working for companies. I saw a stat yesterday, I retweeted that 14% of the jobs in, in LinkedIn are remote, but 50% of the applicants applying for these 14% of jobs. And I think that's true, not because people want to work from home or work from the office. It's just they're from locations. They want to work for interesting companies and those companies yeah. don't have offices in those locations, right? Yeah. So I think like the second phase of Brex and all we're doing around empower and spend management is how do we now build the infrastructure around spend and money and budgeting for these companies that now have these different workflows and that are growing on Brex, right? So DoorDash, for example, or Coinbase were two early customers of this product. Well, DoorDash you know, has both an in-office and remote culture. Coinbase, you know, it's fully remote or remote first. And now, you know, they're taking advantage of Empower to being successful. So that's kind of like a little bit of that story of background so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. I know we've read stories and our colleagues have sort of talked about this in the past with you guys too, sort of the switch away from some of the really small companies, which you guys started out with. But obviously, as you mentioned, now you have companies that are huge. 
using the product as well. So definitely a huge range there on what kind of customers we're trying to use Brex, especially heading into this year. And how do you navigate that? Like, how do you navigate having a product that fits? Or maybe that's why you guys started to pivot slightly away from some of these smaller companies. How do you make Brex work for all of these companies as they grow and sort of as they change in size after they've become customers? Yeah, so that's the main reason we kind of moved away from the smaller ones was because we needed to have a consistent roadmap with our customers. So a very important part of Brex is we want customers to start with us and be able to grow with us through their entire life cycle. Mm. So, you know, they can be a two-person company, you know, and getting a card, and then they can be a 2,000 or 20,000-person company, you know, deploying complex spend management globally for their organization, right? So that's kind of what we want to do. So in order to be able to do that, we need to focus on customers that have ambitions and potential to reach that kind of scale in terms of like big teams, globally distributed, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a few industries or a few entrepreneurs that that's not their goal, right? They want to stay right. being a small business. That's kind of what they want to do. And there, there's no judgment of value from our side there. But if we look at our product roadmap, all of the things that we're building is to solve for these kind of like higher growth companies or large, larger businesses that have a lot of the challenges that we're focusing. So for example, we have an amazing... Uh, solution for like offsites, right? So, you know, for customers to do offsites really easily. If you have three people, there's, you know, and you're working in the same office, there's not really use for our solution. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, even if you're planning an offsite, it's probably logistically pretty easy with three people rather than... <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. I'm curious about that side of it. Like, was that something you had planned earlier? Or was that like an inevitability that you came to realize was going to happen? Like as you scaled, that you realized like, oh, we can't just serve companies that are small and going to stay small, we have to aim for this like ramp to scale in order to support our own scale? Or how did you build that into the roadmap or, or not? I think what happened was that, you know, our initial product just worked really well. And then we we're thinking, mm -hmm. okay, where can we go from here? Right? And we had so many possibilities you could go. We could go into doing corporate cards and spend management to larger businesses as well, like we did. We could have just gone the exact product we have and go to global markets, right? Mm -hmm. And have it in many countries. We could have said, no, we're going to go to small businesses and focus on, you know, on other small businesses and you'd let the large ones grow out of us. We've got to say, hey, we're going to build more banking services, more lending capabilities and become kind of like a full blown bank. Right. Like there's so many ways Rex could have gone. Yeah. And I think we just had to pick the one that one, we thought it was a great opportunity, but two, just. The impact that we were having resonated a lot with us and what we think we could build differently. As I'm saying this, you know, I think that the two ideas that deeply resonate with Pedro and I is this idea of, hey, value can be created from anywhere. So let's help companies that are now hiring multiple locations and, mm -hmm. you know, making those processes much easier and also globally, right? Like we came from Brazil. We, we want to make sure that if you want to hire an engineer in Brazil, like Brex works fully there for you and for this right. engineer and it all works right. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting because it reminds me a bit, I worked at Shopify briefly, but like they had a similar, well, you tell me if this is similar. Like they had a realization when they were, you know, their small merchant platform, right? Like that was their origin was essentially building for people who were like Toby, which is like, I want to sell snowboards. So I'm going to build a, the software to sell snowboards or whatever. But then over time, they had people coming on that were quite large retailers or that became quite large retailers, right? And by accident, they became a B2B company at like a large scale, right? With large scale customers. And then they kind of like backwards built Shopify Plus to fix that. It was like, oh, we're already doing this. Let's put a plus on it. And then let's kind of scramble to productize on that side. Was it 
that nature too, where you kind of woke up and realized, or was it, do you feel like it was more intentional of like, oh, okay, we need to get going there? I think that we just went with our customers, right? So like Mm -hmm. we just, we looked at who are our best customers that, you know, we add a lot of value to them. They generate a good amount of revenue for us that really like us and ask them like, what would you want us to do? Mm -hmm. And overwhelmingly, we heard the same things. (laughs) That's good. I mean, it's good to hear the same thing. (laughs) Consistency helps when you're doing that kind of customer feedback. Exactly. Yeah. So is that is that something that's always been like a key part of how you build is like voice of customer stuff? Like how do you do customer research, customer feedback? Do you do it often? Do you do it personally? How does that all work? Yeah, I we iterated a lot on this. I wouldn't say we were naturally really good at this. Hmm. Like Pedro and I, we were building initially like APIs in Brazil. And so when you're building APIs, it's very easy to you know, you just it's hard to build a back end, but you kind of know what to do because the customer just tells you exactly what they need. Yeah. I think I found that the best way to build customer intuition is two things, is being personally involved in sales and implementation. And sales, because a lot of times what the customer says they like and what they buy are different. Right, of course. And uh, because it's very easy to have a cause like, oh, yeah, I would love this. But then when it gets to buying it, you know, eh, I don't have budget, not priority, blah, 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 any of the things, right? Or two is like after they already bought, like, okay, now you have this mega platform here. Like, how are you actually successful? Like, what are the success metrics for you? So that generates, you know, so we can deliver like real value to your business, not just like, okay, now that you bought a product, like a hundred others that you bought, you know, and and, et cetera. So uh, both my co-founder and I would both get personally involved a lot in these two areas. And I think that builds a lot of customer intuition for us. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm curious, kind of thinking of taking that feedback and as we all talked about earlier, trying to fix some of the errors we all have with Concur and <laughs> the existing stuff out there. What are the big changes there? Like what would a Brex customer never have to deal with that we just suffer endlessly with using Concur and what new features do you get? Yeah, for sure. So one, receipts. We're just getting rid of receipts. with a Brex card. Is, oh. Fantastic. Sold. This is ridiculous because, okay, you you can explain why this happens. Because they integrate with Amex to the point where they ingest all of our expenditures with like little line item descriptions and everything. And yet they can't go to the point where it's like, and they're still like, no, send me a thing. I'm like, but you have it. You have it, kind of. But I guess they don't have enough. But yeah, it's a it's a complex problem. We could spend the whole hour talking about it. Why? But but there's a lot of work and, and there's some work on you know, the card integration side, because think that Concur needs to integrate with the lowest common denominator. So their integration is like, okay, what can all the banks integrate with? Ah, right. Right. And that's, you lose a lot there because it's like the lowest common denominator. The second thing is we just did a lot more integrations with places to, to get the data. And three is like, there is some to do with policy too, which is finance teams were used to doing something for many years. And there's something around showing them the data and saying, look, do you really need to require receipts in every single expense? Because, you know, you can reduce 70% of the effort to your customers, to your team to get 95% of receipt coverage and everything, you know, because if you just concentrate, for example, on the larger transactions and some categories, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it comes from this fundamental insight that there is a counterbalance to putting effort on your team that you as a finance leader, it is your job to make time for your team and allow them to be more productive. And two is this, like, if you make it easy for them, just do it more, right? Like if you make it hard, right. they'll just like dread and not do it. But that's like, for example, one is like killing receipts. The second one is um, manager approval. So a lot of times 
there's so many like useless manager approvals and people who just like click the button, rubber stamp it. And yes. you know, and, uh, not that I do that if you're listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I do do that every single time. Anyways. Continue. <laughs> so that, that's the thing is like, like from the finance team for a second, Oh yeah, we have this control mechanism, you know, that every manager is reviewing everything, but the practice is they don't because they don't have time. And like a ton of transactions, I don't have any time. So things that we do, for example, is we can automatically say what's in policy, what's out of policy. And what's in policy, we automatically approve it. What's out of policy, we then flag it. And then you have like three right. things to look at instead of 50 that you don't have time yeah. to do. Right. Things like that, for example. Yeah. That's, it seems so obvious. Like when you're going through it, you're like, why are these things there? But I think your point that you made from the beginning is you have to architect it from the ground up that way. And then the ones, these legacy systems are like, well, let's just move an inch to the left or an inch to the right. And that'll be a change good enough. Like they just did a right, huge overhaul for concur visually, but it doesn't impact almost at all my like lived experience of it. Or I think anybody's real lived experience of it. Right. Which is mind boggling. Well, but. Because I think that the other thing too, is you need to be selective of your customer set too, because I know I, I love putting blame on concur, but a lot of it is too, is the way you configure it. Right. Yeah. And if you want to make it so, you know, if you're a finance team and you want to make it extremely painful for your employees, you can't do that with Rex too. You know, like you're, you're able yeah. to do it. <laughs> I think they are doing that as a matter of policy, actually. They are trying very hard to discourage us from spending their money. <laughs> we are resisting them. But yeah. yeah. So I think what we say is like, look, for example, I met a CFO and he said, like, you know what? Like every expense over $10,000, I need to personally write the check. I want it to be paid in check, physical checks, and I want to personally write the checks because then I can make sure, you know, people spend less because I need to go into it. That's not the kind of company we want to work with. So also right. like we need to be selective with the companies that believe that you don't want to be like adding a necessary bureaucracy and process to your company because you don't trust your employees, right? Like that's kind of like not who we want to work with and yep. that's okay, right? Like we have our own niche. Yeah. it's. It, I mean, it's cool to be choosy with customers. It is something that you know, as you grow, though, do you fear that that will come under threat as you're looking around and saying, like, we have to grow with our customers? Maybe your customers evolve into that kind of customer, right? Like, do you think that will become compromised over time or you think you can stick with that kind of policy? Look, I think that um, there's a lot that we can really ed help educate our customers because it's not that they're getting actual business value from it. Because the thing I always say to our team is like, hey, if we have an opinion or the customer has an opinion, their opinion will win. Right. Between our two opinions, their opinion will win. So the only way we can change their mind is if we can show them factual data on how they actually get a better business outcome by adopting our suggestion. So I think with time, what we can do is we can show people, hey, actually doing it this way, you actually have people spending less money on useless things. You know, you actually have more compliance and, and you know, it's not as much risk as you think it is. I'm curious, though, just one final thing on this. With it being you guys being kind of choosy or picky about like who you work with, what does that look like exactly? What does it look like if a company wants to reach out to you and maybe you guys take a look and think it might you guys might not be the best mm. solution for them? What does that process look like? Because it sounds almost like an application, but I'm assuming it's not really that cut and dry. So yeah, I'm curious, like, what does that look like? What happens is during the sales process, customers are evaluating us, right, on a set of criteria against our competitors. And if they show up with wanting a lot of features that are kind of like old school, let's put it like that, mm -hmm. 
we know that Concur will probably win that deal anyway. So unless we can teach them and convince them that they should think about it this new way, it kind of just like flows naturally with the product that we built, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's like a, yeah, like a natural exclusion condition or something where it's like, oh, they yeah. just kind of filter their way out. Yeah. Exactly. But it's important for us to not keep building the same things that concur because we're never going to out concur concur. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> so just the very different shift here in subject, but I'm curious because on our show, we have a lot of like very, very early stage companies typically. And so, you know, people share their experience, but it can be somewhat limited because they're still in like that very, very early phase. So something I think that is unique for you on our show is that, you know, you've had, unfortunately, to go through at least two rounds of significant layoffs, right? Including back in 2020 and then again recently in October. So can you just take us through a little bit of what that process is like and what it's like for you as a leader of the company to have to do those layoffs? Yeah, I would say like, you know, if you were to rank the good things about the job, the bad things about the job and the bottom of the bad things, layoffs would be there. That's like the part that's like the worst, right? Because I guess the, the criticism that employees have around layoffs is super fair, which is like, hey, you overhired and now we're right. getting cut, you know, in the middle of this shitty economy. That's totally fair. You know, like it is, um, it is what needs to be done, but it is true. And mm-hmm. I think it's part of it, it's part of the job. And I think the, the thing you can do is just try to do it the best and fair and most transparent way possible. But as you can see from everyone during COVID and everyone now, it, when the macro changes, it's part of your job as a business leader to react. Yeah. And yeah, I guess like, I think all of us that are doing layoffs wish we foresaw this and didn't overhire over the last few years, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more appropriately did everything, but we didn't and, and, and it is cost. So, so it sucks. Uh, I think there's a lot of best practice around how to do it. And I think we, we did it as best as we could. And, you know, hopefully... I won't say it won't happen again in the future because right. I said I wasn't going to do layoffs in COVID and then I had to go back on it and then I never said I was not going to say it's not going to do it again and uh, we had to do it. But it's it's part of the business world and I you know, have to do it. Yeah, I mean, that was the other question I had out of it as you were talking about, you know, it's definitely regrettable that you end up misprojecting sort of like your needs or whatever. But like that brings up like, is it even avoidable? Is it even possible or I guess a better way to say it is like, do you feel like you personally will be more conservative about things in future? Or do you think that that's not really a way that you can operate? Like companies need to plan for the macro they envision will happen. And then, you know, reversals are reversals. This is what I'll say is like, hey, do I regret deploying the capital when it was very available to us over the last few years? And the answer is no, because right. I think that was the right thing to do. Do I regret deploying it and too much headcount? Yes, I do regret that. And I will be more conservative in the future. You can get a lot like having less headcount forces prioritization and prioritization and focus delivers better business outcomes than trying to do everything at the same time. And I think that if we had forced more headcount constraints, we would have been more focused and we us being more focused would have been good. So if headcount constraints mm. what gets us to be more focused in the future, that is the lesson that I did learn and hope to maintain. And sort of sticking on the leadership side for just a second, 
knowing that you still work with your co-founder who you met at such a young age and having the title of co-CEO, as we've seen, especially recently, sometimes really can work out and sometimes really can't, doesn't work sometimes. How do you guys navigate it? I read a little bit in a Forbes story that said you guys almost act as like an outro CEO and an intro CEO, like having very distinct roles. Hmm. But yeah, what is that like? And kind of how do you guys navigate that split? Yeah, for sure. I would say like it's probably one of the superpowers at Brex. If people ask like, hey, what are some of the organizational? Like our split is probably one of them in my view. Because I think we just have more time than the average CEO to do some stuff, you know, because we do split this internal external. So you know, a lot of people ask, oh, Brex was really good at fundraising. Like, why did that happen? It's like, well, I just had more time to do it than most founders do, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had more time to build relationships and to understand investors and to refine the pitch, right, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people ask, oh, wow, like, you know, Brex is, has a lot of really good kind of like internal operating systems. You operate really well, et cetera. Like, well, how'd that happen? My co-founder also doesn't have to do any of that, you know? So yeah. he can focus more internally. So it's similarly with customers, right? I just have more time than the average CEO to spend with customers. So it turns out we have really good customer intuition as a company because I just spend a lot of time doing it, right? So th- things like that, that just make it so we can kind of get a lot of more output from the CEO job than if it just was one of us. Hmm. That's such an interesting way to put it, like getting a stronger outcome, like stronger output from the co-CEO team because yeah, I've just like never heard it put that way, but when it is such an even split like that and such like distinct roles, I feel like it can work. We just hear so often about how that relationship just completely crashes and burns at right. the first sight of trouble. But this is like a very interesting way to approach yeah. it. Go ahead. How do you think about conflict? Like that would be my follow-up to what Becca was just saying is like, cause yeah, that's seems to be the rub for other people who try to invoke this kind of structure. Right. I think that like the, when it breaks a lot of times is when you have like, the reporting structure in the company is very divided. So it's like, oh, sales and marketing reports here, then like product engineering reports here. That's kind of usually the split people take, right? Or something like that. But the reality is like, these things need to be like very streamlined with each other. You know, like the position that you have in marketing needs to translate to sales, that needs to translate to product, needs to translate to engineering. And it's being like a very like consistent system. There's like so many things around culture. So I think like the part that it breaks is when you have these kind of like multiple reporting structures where like half of the organization reports somewhere, the other half another place. Mm-hmm. I think in my thing, I have zero people to report to me. Mm. And that works really well. That sounds like a dream. Honestly, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. And Pedro has everyone reporting to him, which he also likes. He's, he's a great manager and he's a great leader and he loves you know doing that. So I think that there's no question around that. And I think in conflict, like within organizational matters and things that, you know, are in the organization, he is the decision maker. I give my opinion, but he is the one deciding it, right? Like, obviously, like in big strategic topics and stuff like that, you know, obviously, it's consensus between the two of us, but we've been working together now for 11 years. So we kind of wow. know how to conflict resolute in, in those big decisions. Yeah, I had a sort of follow up question, which was like, do you ever just think, but I'm the real CEO <laughs> in your head. <laughs> Honestly, I think he's closer to the real CEO than I am. So. <laughs> That's the best answer. That's the most politic answer you could get. But also it sounds like it's true too. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you, you brought up in that, in your last answer about structure and like company structure and making sure that it's kind of roles are comparable across different parts of the organization. I'm so interested in how you came to that kind of realization and when in the company's development you did, because it's, 
I think it's a very astute observation, but it's not one that you hear often with younger companies, right? Like it seems like something that is like very, very mature, like, you know, many decades old companies. Yeah, I would say, again, one of the benefits that we had at Brex was having very strong mentorship and very strong mentors. And again, that coming up a little bit from the role split, I just had more time to recruit them probably than the average CEO. <laughs> and again, because we started the business so early, when our first business we were 16, the only way we know how to learn is through you know more experienced people who've done this before and we can absorb as much as we can. So we always put a lot of work to have a very strong mentor network to help us figure these things out so we can try to avoid some mistakes. So I'd say that's probably the secret. I'm curious now, because you brought it up, what's the best piece of advice you got from these mentors, especially starting out so early? I mentioned this one in the past before, but it was really good. So uh, Evan from Snap, I met him like a long time ago. And he told me something that was really smart. He's like, hey, all these CEOs, they're trying to like, when you're a founder and CEO, you're trying to like emulate someone. So you're like trying to like, okay, like what is Elon Musk like? I kind of want to be like Elon right. Musk, right? Like, or he's like, oh, what is Jeff Bezos like? I kind of want to be like Jeff Bezos. But it turns out like they're just very different people than you a lot of times. Maybe if you're super similar to them, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm not, like I'm ADHD. I, can, I don't read books that much, you know, like I, I, I can't like learn like rocket science and physics like that, you know, like just not me. <laughs> and I think that the advice I got was like, hey, you, the best CEOs are just extremely authentic to themselves, you know, and like mm-hmm. they understand what, their best qualities are and what they're not. And they focus on their strengths and trying to emulate like what great CEOs should look like. And I think that was just a really good piece of advice. Yeah, that is great advice. I think the example that we always used to bring up, I'm dating myself, but you know, in the early days of my career was Steve Jobs, right? And people would say the same thing because people would always be like, oh, I want to, especially in the startup industry, it was 100% like, oh, I want to be like Steve Jobs. I'm going to be like Steve Jobs. And everybody was like, you should not be like Steve. <laughs> Most businesses run by a person like Steve Jobs will not succeed, especially if that's not who you are naturally. Yeah. Right? Like it's just yeah, not yeah. going to work. Totally. I don't think I'm a product genius. I think I need to talk to a lot of customers to build intuition and then, you know, be creative and talk to the team and get a bunch of insight. Like one of the things that someone told me early on that I thought was really smart is like, I was young and it's like, I think I was like, I think I'm very creative. I had great ideas. And the person's like, look, let me tell you something. In these day and age, there's no such thing as like real creative. It's all editing. Like you're exposed to like a lot of ideas every day, all the time. And then like some mix of it gives you an idea that you think is really good. But what gets you to do that is the fact that you're just exposed to so many ideas all the time and you're editing what's good, it's bad, what applies, what doesn't apply, right? And I think that's very true. I think like, you know, maybe Steve Jobs was, you know, an enlightened human being. He probably was, but I'm not bad. And so therefore I need to just get exposed a lot so I can edit and and find the good ideas. Yeah, I I think actually you're probably right that his main talent was that he was an excellent editor, right? Like I think think that's actually... He was, he was a terrific integrator and editor, which is what you're describing, which is a really, that is another great observation, especially when it comes to the startup industry. I think there's a lot of people who are like, well, if I'm not inspired to do something completely original and unique, then I, this is not for me, but that's not what people who are successful are actually doing. They're taking in a lot of ideas and then combining them and recombining them and then generating something that is you know, close enough, but different, but like novel in ways that are important, right? Like, I think that's how I would summarize most yeah, totally. people I know who are successful. Totally. Know? I agree with that. That's why even when competitors copy us, you know, I don't get upset. It's like, oh, they're smart. You know, they should copy that. Right. I always find it funny when they copy the wrong stuff, but you know, the right stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever put stuff in that's like wrong, but tasty? It's just like, oh yeah, here you go. It's a honey trap. Copy this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a false, false flag. 
No, no. So yeah, we never did it on purpose, but there's some things we know are bad <laughs> and we just never had time to go and update it. And then people copy it and it's like, oh, did you really think about this? Or, you know. <laughs> it must be very satisfying. Like they're copying the product in the one area where you're like, mm, we could probably put more work over there, yeah. but sure, go right ahead. Totally. Totally, totally. That's terrific. And I've experienced this firsthand too. And I think a lot of people fall for it. It's like, because you will see something that you aspire to and you'll say, oh, I'm going to emulate every part of that because no one knows what is the core component that is that makes it successful necessarily, right? So you just kind of totally. like, yeah, kit and caboodle. Oh my God. I see this totally with like, for example, like with Google and like all the employee perks, you know, like yeah. everyone is like, yeah, I need to have employee perks because Google has employee perks and that's what made them successful, you know? Right. And that's definitely not what made them successful, you know? No. Like, like, <laughs> so I think people emulate the wrong stuff all the time. That's a great example because it is, it proliferates to the point where you could not essentially build a company in Silicon Valley or in tech without kind of offering those things. Those are table stakes. But like the real reason those companies needed them was because they employed people who were independently wealthy beyond their wildest dreams who were like, and they were like, please stay. And then they had to figure out ways to get them to please stay. It was nothing to do with like, Oh, well, how do we attract new talent or anything like that? Right. It was yeah. entirely like, yeah. or look, the decisions in a lot of companies, you know, I know obviously not a lot of companies and like, it's just like someone has an idea and then they do it and people have to like it and no one revisits that idea for like years yeah. and years. And then, you know, and it doesn't really change that much the outcome of the company, but then there's some ideas. They're just really good stories, right? Like yeah. explaining that, like, for example, you know, the way that the algorithm worked better compared to Yahoo, that's like, that's not a story that's going to stick and people are going to like repeat, you know, and who cares? You know, it's just so not applicable. But now like, oh yeah, employees here, they can like play soccer and wild games. Yeah, that's very repeatable. You know, I want to tell that to yes. all my friends, you know? Right. Yeah, it's so digestible. Yeah. 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 Daryl, we should do a study on what companies, how well they perform and succeed if they have a ping pong table. Oh, okay. Let's I, do that study. I, I feel like that was probably part of the Google perks <laughs> yeah, adoption. They were like, they all play ping pong and they seem happy there. We yeah. should we should play ping pong here too. Yeah, yeah. why not? Causality and uh, coincidence, right? It's like, yeah, we we love to attribute causality to absolutely absurd things. Totally. But honestly, <laughs> this is a great segue because there's another point that bureaucracy is exactly the same. I'll tell you exactly how bureaucracy mm. these big companies start. It goes like this. It's like sometime, and I'll use expenses because it's kind of like, you know, where we play. But like, you know, early when companies start, there's no bureaucracy on expenses, right? Like everyone just gets a corporate card, a Brex card, hopefully. And they're spending and, you know, no one's reviewing anything because everyone trusts everyone. Yep. Then someone goes and breaks that trust, right? So in our case, it was some engineer that went to Alexander Steakhouse and bought $3,000 worth of Wagyu beef. Mm. And then our CEO, you know, we saw that and we were so upset. It's like, oh my God, that's not the culture we want to make. You know, and we told our CFO, make sure this never happens again. So he implemented all these reviews and processes and receipts and all this stuff. And because of the one dude, you know, who went to Alexander yeah. Steakhouse, now everyone has to suffer. And you can see that in so many other situations right around the company. Like one bad hire, now there's hiring committees for everything. One bad marketing campaign, now everything needs to be reviewed by everyone, right? Like, you know, hey, enterprise companies get to the point that they do like deployments four times a year to make sure nothing breaks, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because one, one, you know, things sometimes break and then you kind of create bureaucracy and no one revisits that bureaucracy later. No one no. says like, okay, like how do we like, okay, this is being spending all everyone's time, you know? So that's kind of like uh, how a lot of this happens too. Yeah. It calcifies. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, the most apocryphal, well, the, it's a real example is us taking our shoes off at the airport for the TSA, right? Oh, that's yeah. like the, right. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. For example. Exactly. But how exactly. do you prevent that from happening? Is it just revisit? Like, how do you, in your own management of the company of the day to day, like avoid these things sort of becoming amberized or whatever? Yeah, I think like I think it's part of the leader's job is to constantly be thinking how to make their team more productive, right? So one of the things we did early on at Rex was releasing a survey saying like, hey, how much of your job do you actually spend doing your job versus like doing other stuff? Mm. And you'd be surprised with the results from most companies on this. Like the, the more you grow, the more doing your job becomes a smaller part and mm-hmm. <laughs> doing all the other stuff becomes a bigger part. So we try to drive that number up, you know, like, and I think this is actually a good time to do this because, you know, with all the hiring freezes and layoffs and headcount, blah, blah, doing more with less is an extremely important thing. You know, it's like, yeah. how do you, with the same amount of people you have, you actually output more and giving them more time to do their job is probably like a good, uh, a good way to do that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think basically we're out of time, but Enrique, that is, it's been wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on and being so candid about everything going on at Brex, including some of the, the unfortunate reversals. So yeah, really, really had a good time talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Enrique. What did you take away from that conversation? I think what was most interesting to me was how he talked about Brex's strategy shift earlier this year, their move to work less with those really early stage startups and more with the high growth startups as well as some of the larger companies too. It was interesting because obviously working with companies that young was their bread and butter and sort of why they got started, the problem they were trying to solve. And when that was announced, People had a lot of opinions on that, and not all of them are positive. And I thought he explained the switch and talked about it in a very transparent way. So I really liked how he walked us through that. Yeah, yeah. I know there was a strong reaction when we published those articles about the switch because it was like one of those things where Brex was seen as like super onside for startups and like, oh, you're one of us, like you got our back. And then this felt a little bit like a betrayal to that community, which Absolutely. tends to generally take things personally, right? I think we all know. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. But then if you look at it more practically, and I think you were telling me earlier about like some of the reasoning behind it, but like we, I meant to ask uh, Enrique a bit more about this too, but the customer base they had before was not sustainable, right? Which is kind of a story of like a lot of startups, And it's one that I think usually doesn't get as messy or as public, which is like your initial customers are often other startups, but there's no way that's sustainable long term because most of those go away. So if you're in a business where you're trying to lock down recurring revenue long term, that's not really a great client base. Yeah, they either go away or become entirely different sized companies, different scale in such a short period of time. I feel like you are right that we don't talk about that often. There are so many companies catered directly to startups, but startups can mean so many different things. And as far as businesses go, they're the quickest to change, fastest to grow. So it must be really difficult to kind of find a blanket solution that works for quote unquote startups. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's easy when you're like NYC and you're just like selling to other YC companies, which is like famously how they usually kick it off. But then once you're like, oh, let's look at the uh, our five-year plan. And you're like, well, 90% of our customers will probably be dead next year. And then right again, the next year after that, we'll spin up a new sales cycle and 90% of those will be dead. And or yeah, or the other ones will be like, I'm a mega rocket. I'm a huge success. 
And now I need somebody much larger than you to provide for my needs because you're not sophisticated enough product or offering. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So what else about uh, Henrique spoke to you? I think it was nice to get into layoffs at this particular moment in time with someone who's actually conducted not one, but two significant rounds of them. Absolutely. I know, especially seeing some of the coverage of layoffs just over the course of the year, it is always interesting sort of who takes responsibility for what happened and who doesn't. And Brex definitely stood out both times of being very transparent about it and being very like, we just overshot on this or we predicted this was going to happen and it didn't pan out. And so I thought he talked about it very candidly. Yeah. And I mean, I do agree with him. It's unfortunate, but like layoffs are generally just a part of business and they're kind of hard to avoid. Yeah. But I feel having that approach, I mean, not posting a video of yourself crying on LinkedIn, like there's definitely like a whole range of how you can react to having right. to conduct layoffs. So it was interesting to hear him talk about that. But I was curious what you thought about the leadership structure there sort of related to that. Kind of the co-CEOs, but Henrique said he, no one reports to him. Uh -huh. And everyone reports to the other CEO. I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, they have an interesting division of responsibilities. Like, I think you called it like the internal-external split, right? But it's it's weird. I mean, to me, and this may say more about me than it does about them or about their relationship, but like, it sounds like Enrique has like the good job and then Pedro has like the bad CEO job. Like it really doesn't seem like an equal or fair division of labor. Like Enrique's the face of the company gets to do all the fun. Well, fun stuff. I mean, fundraising is, I think, fun if it's happening in the way that he's going through it, which is like without other distractions of like running day to day operations and managing external stakeholders and stuff like that. Because this is, again, I really don't want to be revealing too much about myself, but managing the internal <laughs> stuff is, like, not the most fun part of the job. I, I know. Say. I feel like you only ever hear people say, like, oh, they love managing people. You never hear someone say, oh, I love managing people. Right. So I was like, oh, yeah, they love managing people. This is perfect for them. Yeah, yeah, right. And I, yeah, I, was, I mean, maybe we'll have Pedro on a future episode and he'll say, like, yeah. I mean, Enrique really screwed me on this one, <laughs> but uh, it seems like it's, I mean, it's worked for them for quite a while to date, like longer than most of these types of equal division partnerships at the top mm -hmm. role tend to last. No, for sure. That's something that doesn't get talked about often, especially on the investor side too. I've heard from a lot of like solo GPs that they always get asked about if they're going to be able to do it like by themselves or the whole like, what if you get hit by a bus? But how like partnerships in VC, and I'm assuming it's similar in startups too, because I don't see why it wouldn't be, they're way more likely to fail. Mm -hmm. Because you just don't know, especially coming in as friends, that almost like makes this even more interesting than it's lasted so well for so long. Yeah. I, I don't have a single friend I can imagine starting a company with, and I don't mean any disrespect by that literally at all. No, but I mean, yeah, I'm in the same way. Like, yeah, I think it would ruin any one of those friendships were we to do that. But, you know, if you're one of my friends listening to this podcast and, you know, you're considering that business proposal I sent over, don't let that, don't let that sway you. <laughs> you're still going to do it. <laughs> and you're perfect for it. And you're perfect. We're going to be great. Yeah, I think I, re I really did like that conversation with Enrique, though. I think it was honestly, it was surprising to me just based on my general kind of impression of him that he was as forthcoming as he was and that he seemed very genuine. Yeah. And so, you know, I would said it during that, but I, I still, I, it's worth reiterating. If they can kill Concur, they will be true heroes. 
I will among support our human world. <laughs> anyone who can kill a conqueror. <laughs> We're gonna get notes from conqueror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hold up. 